Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The Last of the Mohicans is a historical novel by James Fenimore Cooper, first published in 1826. It is the second book of the Leather Stocking Tales Pentalogy and the best known. The story is set in 1757 during the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, when France and Great Britain battled for control of North America. The novel is known for its detailed description of wilderness and frontier life and for its exploration of the cultural conflict between the European settlers and the native tribes of North America. It also features themes of heroism, love, and tragedy, and a moving exploration of the eventual fate of the native tribes. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify and Apple Music. Chapter 24 Thus spoke the sage, the kings without delay dissolve the council and their chief obey. Pope's Iliad A single moment served to convince the youth that he was mistaken. A hand was laid with a powerful pressure on his arm and the low voice of Uncas muttered in his ears. The Hurons are dogs. The sight of a coward's blood can never make a warrior tremble. The gray head and the sagamore are safe, and the rifle of Hawkeye is not asleep. Go, Uncas, and the open hand are now strangers. It is enough. Hayward would gladly have heard more, but a gentle push from his friend urged him towards the door and admonished him of the danger that might attend the discovery of their intercourse. Slowly and reluctantly yielding to the necessity, he quitted the place and mingled with the throng that hovered nigh. The dying fires in the clearing cast a dim and uncertain light on the dusky figures that were silently stalking to and fro, and occasionally a brighter gleam than common glanced into the lodge and exhibited the figure of Uncas still maintaining its upright attitude near the dead body of the Huron. A knot of warriors soon entered the place again, and reissuing, they bore the senseless remains into the adjacent woods. After this termination of the scene, Duncan wandered among the lodges, unquestioned and unnoticed, endeavoring to find some trace of her in whose behalf he incurred the risk he ran. In the present temper of the tribe, it would have been easy to have fled and rejoined his companions had such a wish crossed his mind. But, in addition to the never-ceasing anxiety on account of Alice, a fresher but feebler interest in the fate of Ancus assisted to chain him to the spot. He continued, therefore, 
to stray from hut to hut, looking into each only to encounter additional disappointment until he had made the entire circuit of the village, abandoning a species of inquiry that proved so fruitless. He retraced his steps to the council lodge, resolved to seek and question David in order to put an end to his doubts. On reaching the building which had proved like the seat of judgment and the place of execution, the young man found that the excitement had already subsided. The warriors had reassembled and were now calmly smoking while they conversed gravely on the chief incidents of their recent expedition to the head of the hurricane. Though the return of Duncan was likely to remind them of his character and the suspicious circumstances of his visit, it produced no visible sensation. So far, the terrible scene that had just occurred proved favorable to his views and he required no other prompter than his own feelings to convince him of the expediency of profiting by so unexpected an advantage. Without seeming to hesitate, he walked into the lodge and took his seat with a gravity that accorded admirably with the deportment of his hosts. A hasty but searching glance sufficed to tell him that, though Anka still remained where he had left him, David had not reappeared. No other restraint was imposed on the former than the watchful looks of a young Huron who had placed himself at hand, though an armed warrior leaned against the post that formed one side of the narrow doorway. In every other respect, the captive seemed at liberty, still he was excluded from all participation in the discourse and possessed much more of the air of some finely molded statue than a man having life and volition. Hayward had too recently witnessed a frightful instance of the prompt punishments of the people into whose hands he had fallen to hazard an exposure by any officious boldness. He would greatly have preferred silence and meditation to speech when a discovery of his real condition might prove so instantly fatal. Unfortunately for this prudent resolution, his entertainers appeared otherwise disposed. He had not long occupied the seat wisely taken a little in the shade when another of the elder warriors who spoke the French language addressed him. My Canada father does not forget his children, said the chief, I thank him. An evil spirit lives in the wife of one of my young men. Can the cunning stranger frighten him away? Hayward possessed some knowledge of the mummery practiced among the Indians in the cases of such supposed visitations. He saw, at a glance, that the circumstance might possibly be improved to further his own end. It would, therefore, have been difficult, just then, to have uttered a proposal that would have given him more satisfaction. Aware of the necessity of preserving the dignity of his imaginary character, however, he repressed his feelings and answered with suitable mystery. Spirits differ, some yield to the power of wisdom while others are too strong. My brother is a great medicine, said the cunning savage, he will try? A gesture of assent was the answer. The Huron was content with the assurance and resuming his pipe, 
he awaited the proper moment to move. The impatient Hayward, inwardly execrating the cold customs of the savages, which required such sacrifices to appearance, was fain to assume an air of indifference equal to that maintained by the chief, who was, in truth, a near relative of the afflicted woman. The minutes lingered, and the delay had seemed an hour to the adventurer in empiricism when the Huron laid aside his pipe and drew his robe across his breast as if about to lead the way to the lodge of the invalid. Just then, a warrior of powerful frame darkened the door and stalking silently among the attentive group, he seated himself on one end of the low pile of brush which sustained Duncan. The latter cast an impatient look at his neighbor and felt his flesh creep with uncontrollable horror when he found himself in actual contact with Magua. The sudden return of this artful and dreaded chief caused a delay in the departure of the Huron. Several pipes that had been extinguished were lighted again while the newcomer, without speaking a word, drew his tomahawk from his girdle and filling the bowl on its head, began to inhale the vapors of the wheat through the hollow handle with as much indifference as if he had not been absent two weary days on a long and toilsome hunt. Ten minutes, which appeared so many ages to Duncan, might have passed in this manner and the warriors were fairly enveloped in a cloud of white smoke before any of them spoke. Welcome, one at length uttered, has my friend found the moose? The young men stagger under their burdens, returned Magua. Let Reed that bends go on the hunting path, he will meet them. A deep and awful silence succeeded the utterance of the forbidden name. Each pipe dropped from the lips of its owner as though all had inhaled an impurity at the same instant. The smoke wreathed above their heads in little eddies and curling in a spiral form, it ascended swiftly through the opening in the roof of the lodge, leaving the place beneath clear of its fumes and each dark visage distinctly visible. The looks of most of the warriors were riveted on the earth, though a few of the younger and less gifted of the party suffered their wild and glaring eyeballs to roll in the direction of a white-headed savage who sat between two of the most venerated chiefs of the tribe. There was nothing in the air or attire of this Indian that would seem to entitle him to such a distinction. The former was rather depressed than remarkable for the bearing of the natives and the latter was such as was commonly worn by the ordinary men of the nation. Like most around him, for more than a minute his look too was on the ground, but trusting his eyes at length to steal a glance aside, he perceived that he was becoming an object of general attention. Then he arose and lifted his voice in the general silence. It was a lie, he said, I had no son. He who was called by that name is forgotten, his blood was pale, and it came not from the veins of a Huron, the wicked Chippewas cheated my squaw. The great spirit has said that the family of Wissantash should end, he is happy who knows that the evil of his race dies with himself. I have done. The speaker, who is the father of the recreant young Indian, 
looked round and about him as if seeking commendation of his stoicism in the eyes of his auditors. But the stern customs of his people had made too severe an exaction of the feeble old man. The expression of his eye contradicted his figurative and boastful language while every muscle in his wrinkled visage was working with anguish. Standing a single minute to enjoy his bitter triumph, he turned away as if sickening at the gaze of men and veiling his face in his blanket, he walked from the lodge with the noiseless step of an Indian seeking, in the privacy of his own abode, the sympathy of one like himself, aged, forlorn, and childless. The Indians, who believe in the hereditary transmission of virtues and defects in character, suffered him to depart in silence. Then, with an elevation of breeding that many in a more cultivated state of society might profitably emulate, one of the chiefs drew the attention of the young men from the weakness they had just witnessed by saying, in a cheerful voice, addressing himself in courtesy to Magua as the newest comber. The Delawares have been like bears after the honey pots prowling around my village. But who has ever found a Huron asleep? The darkness of the impending cloud which precedes a burst of thunder was not blacker than the brow of Magua as he exclaimed. The Delawares of the lakes? Not so. They who wear the petticoats of squaws on their own river. One of them has been passing the tribe. Did my young men take his scalp? His legs were good, though his arm is better for the hoe than the tomahawk, returned the other, pointing to the immovable form of Uncas. Instead of manifesting any womanish curiosity to feast his eyes with the sight of a captive from a people he was known to have so much reason to hate, Mugwa continued to smoke with the meditative air that he usually maintained when there was no immediate call on his cunning or his eloquence. Although secretly amazed at the facts communicated by the speech of the aged father, he permitted himself to ask no questions, reserving his inquiries for a more suitable moment. It was only after a sufficient interval that he shook the ashes from his pipe, replaced the tomahawk, tightened his girdle, and arose, casting for the first time a glance in the direction of the prisoner who stood a little behind him. The wary, though seemingly abstracted Uncas, caught a glimpse of the movement and turning suddenly to the light, their looks met. Near a minute these two bold and untamed spirits stood regarding one another steadily in the eye, neither quailing in the least before the fierce gaze he encountered. The form of Uncas dilated and his nostrils opened like those of a tiger at bay, but so rigid and unyielding was his posture that he might easily have been converted by the imagination into an exquisite and faultless representation of the warlike deity of his tribe. The lineaments of the quivering features of Magua proved more ductile, his countenance gradually lost its character of defiance and an expression of ferocious joy, and heaving a breath from the very bottom of his chest, he pronounced aloud the very formidable name of Lucerf Agile. 
Each warrior sprang upon his feet at the utterance of the well-known appellation, and there was a short period during which the stoical constancy of the natives was completely conquered by surprise. The hated and yet respected name was repeated as by one voice, carrying the sound even beyond the limits of the lodge. The women and children who lingered around the entrance took up the words in an echo, which was succeeded by another shrill and plaintive howl. The latter was not yet ended when the sensation among the men had entirely abetted. Each one in presence seated himself as though ashamed of his precipitation, but it was many minutes before their meaning eyes ceased to roll towards their captive in curious examination of a warrior who had so often proved his prowess on the best and proudest of their nation. Uncas enjoyed his victory, but was content with merely exhibiting his triumph by a quiet smile and emblem of scorn which belongs to all time and every nation. Magua caught the expression, and raising his arm, he shook it at the captive, the light silver ornaments attached to his bracelet rattling with the trembling agitation of the limb as, in a tone of vengeance, he exclaimed in English. Mohican, you die. The healing waters will never bring the dead herons to life, returned Uncas. In the music of the Delawares, the tumbling river washes their bones, their men are squaws, their women owls. Go! Call together the Huron dogs, that they may look upon a warrior. My nostrils are offended, they scent the blood of a coward. The latter allusion struck deep, and the injury rankled. Many of the Hurons understood the strange tongue in which the captive spoke, among which number was Magua. This cunning savage beheld, and instantly profited by his advantage. Dropping the light robe of skin from his shoulder, he stretched forth his arm and commenced a burst of his dangerous and artful eloquence. However much his influence among his people had been impaired by his occasional and besetting weakness, as well as by his desertion of the tribe, his courage and his fame as an orator were undeniable. He never spoke without auditors, and rarely without making converts to his opinions. On the present occasion, his native powers were stimulated by the thirst of revenge. He again recounted the events of the attack on the island at Glens, the death of his associates, and the escape of their most formidable enemies. Then he described the nature and position of the mount whither he had led such captives as had fallen into their hands. Of his own bloody intentions towards the maidens, and of his baffled malice he made no mention, but passed rapidly on to the surprise of the party by La Long Carabin and its fatal termination. Here he paused and looked about him in affected veneration for the departed, but, in truth, to note the effect of his opening narrative. As usual, every eye was riveted on his face. Each dusky figure seemed a breathing statue, so motionless was the posture so intense the attention of the individual. Then Mago dropped his voice, which had hitherto been clear 
strong and elevated and touched upon the merits of the dead. No quality that was likely to command the sympathy of an Indian escaped his notice. One had never been known to follow the chase in vain, another had been indefatigable on the trail of their enemies. This was brave, that generous. In short, he so managed his illusions that in a nation which was composed of so few families, he contrived to strike every chord that might find, in its turn, some breast in which to vibrate. Are the bones of my young men, he concluded, in the burial place of the Hurons? You know they are not. Their spirits are gone towards the setting sun and are already crossing the great waters to the happy hunting grounds. But they departed without food, without guns or knives, without moccasins, naked and poor as they were born. Shall this be? Are their souls to enter the land of the just like hungry Iroquois or unmanly Delawares, or shall they meet their friends with arms in their hands and robes on their backs? What will our fathers think the tribes of the Wyandots have become? They will look on their children with a dark eye and say, go. A Chippewa has come hither with the name of a Huron. Brothers, we must not forget the dead, a redskin never ceases to remember. We will load the back of this Mohican until he staggers under our bounty and dispatch him after my young men. They call to us for aid, though our ears are not open, they say, forget us not. When they see the spirit of this Mohican toiling after them with his burden, they will know we are of that mind. Then will they go unhappy, and our children will say, so did our fathers to their friends, so must we do to them. What is a Yen Ji? We have slain many, but the earth is still pale. A stain on the name of a Huron can only be hid by blood that comes from the veins of an Indian. Let this Delaware die. The effect of such an harangue, delivered in the nervous language and with the emphatic manner of a Huron orator, could scarcely be mistaken. Magua had so artfully blended the natural sympathies with the religious superstition of his auditors that their minds, already prepared by custom to sacrifice a victim to the manies of their countrymen, lost every vestige of humanity in a wish for revenge. One warrior in particular, a man of wild and ferocious mien, had been conspicuous for the attention he had given to the words of the speaker. His countenance had changed with each passing emotion until it settled into a look of deadly malice. As Magua ended he arose, and uttering the yell of a demon, his polished little axe was seen glancing in the torchlight as he whirled it above his head. The motion and the cry were too sudden for words to interrupt his bloody intention. It appeared as if a bright gleam shot from his hand which was crossed at the same moment by a dark and powerful line. The former was the tomahawk in its passage, the latter the arm that Magua darted forward to divert its aim. 
The quick and ready motion of the chief was not entirely too late. The keen weapon cut the war plume from the scalping tuft of Uncas and passed through the frail wall of the lodge as though it were hurled from some formidable engine. Duncan had seen the threatening action and sprang upon his feet with a heart which while it leaped into his throat swelled with the most generous resolution in behalf of his friend. A glance told him that the blow had failed and terror changed to admiration. Uncas stood still, looking his enemy in the eye with features that seemed superior to emotion. Marble could not be colder, calmer, or steadier than the countenance he put upon this sudden and vindictive attack. Then, as if pitying a want of skill which had proved so fortunate to himself, he smiled and muttered a few words of contempt in his own tongue. No, said Magua, after satisfying himself of the safety of the captive, the sun must shine on his shame, the squaws must see his flesh tremble, or our revenge will be like the play of boys. Go! Take him where there is silence, let us see if a Delaware can sleep at night and in the morning die. The young men whose duty it was to guard the prisoner instantly passed their ligaments of bark across his arms and led him from the lodge amid a profound and ominous silence. It was only as the figure of Uncas stood in the opening of the door that his firm step hesitated. There he turned and, in the sweeping and haughty glance that he threw around the circle of his enemies, Duncan caught a look which he was glad to construe into an expression that he was not entirely deserted by hope. Magua was content with his success or too much occupied with his secret purposes to push his inquiries any further. Shaking his mantle and folding it on his bosom, he also quitted the place without pursuing a subject which might have proved so fatal to the individual at his elbow. Notwithstanding his rising resentment, his natural firmness, and his anxiety in behalf of Uncas, Hayward felt sensibly relieved by the absence of so dangerous and so subtle a foe. The excitement produced by the speech gradually subsided. The warriors resumed their seats, and clouds of smoke once more filled the lodge. For near half an hour, not a syllable was uttered or scarcely a look cast aside, a grave and meditative silence being the ordinary succession to every scene of violence and commotion among those beings who were alike so impetuous and yet so self-restrained. When the chief who had solicited the aid of Duncan finished his pipe, he made a final and successful movement towards departing. A motion of a finger was the intimation he gave the supposed physician to follow and passing through the clouds of smoke, Duncan was glad, on more accounts than one, to be able, at last, to breathe the pure air of a cool and refreshing summer evening. Instead of pursuing his way among those lodges where Hayward had already made his unsuccessful search, his companion turned aside and proceeded directly towards the base of an adjacent mountain which overhung the temporary village. A thicket of brush skirted its foot and it became necessary to proceed through a crooked and narrow path. The boys had resumed their sports in the clearing 
and were enacting a mimic chase to the post among themselves in order to render their games as like the reality as possible one of the boldest of their number had conveyed a few brands into some piles of treetops that had hitherto escaped the burning. The blaze of one of these fires lighted the way of the chief and Duncan and gave a character of additional wildness to the rude scenery. At a little distance from a bald rock and directly in its front, they entered a grassy opening which they prepared to cross. Just then fresh fuel was added to the fire and a powerful light penetrated even to that distant spot. It fell upon the white surface of the mountain and was reflected downwards upon a dark and mysterious looking being that arose unexpectedly in their path. The Indian paused as if doubtful whether to proceed and permitted his companion to approach his side. A large black ball, which at first seemed stationary, now began to move in a manner that to the latter was inexplicable. Again the fire brightened and its glare fell more distinctly on the object. Then even Duncan knew it by its restless and sidling attitudes which kept the upper part of its form in constant motion while the animal itself appeared seated to be a bear. Though it growled loudly and fiercely, and there were instants when its glistening eyeballs might be seen, it gave no other indications of hostility. The Huron, at least, seemed assured that the intentions of this singular intruder were peaceable, for after giving it an attentive examination, he quietly pursued his course. Duncan, who knew that the animal was often domesticated among the Indians, followed the example of his companion, believing that some favorite of the tribe had found its way into the thicket in search of food. They passed it unmolested. Though obliged to come nearly in contact with the monster, the Huron, who had at first so warily determined the character of his strange visitor, was now content with proceeding without wasting a moment in further examination but Hayward was unable to prevent his eyes from looking backward in salutary watchfulness against attacks in the rear. His uneasiness was in no degree diminished when he perceived the beast rolling along their path and following their footsteps. He would have spoken, but the Indian at that moment shoved aside a door of bark and entered a cavern in the bosom of the mountain. Profiting by so easy a method of retreat, Duncan stepped after him and was gladly closing the slight cover to the opening when he felt it drawn from his hand by the beast, whose shaggy form immediately darkened the passage. They were now in a straight and long gallery in a chasm of the rocks where retreat without encountering the animal was impossible. Making the best of the circumstances, the young man pressed forward, keeping as close as possible to his conductor. The bear growled frequently at his heels, and once or twice its enormous paws were laid on his person as if disposed to prevent his further passage into the den. How long the nerves of Hayward would have sustained him in this extraordinary situation, it might be difficult to decide, for, happily, he soon found relief. A glimmer of light had constantly been in their front 
and they now arrived at the place whence it proceeded. A large cavity in the rock had been rudely fitted to answer the purposes of many apartments. The subdivisions were simple but ingenious, being composed of stone, sticks, and bark intermingled. Openings above admitted the light by day, and at night fires and torches supplied the place of the sun. Hither the Hurons had brought most of their valuables, especially those which more particularly pertained to the nation, and hither, as it now appeared, the sick woman, who was believed to be the victim of supernatural power, had been transported also under an impression that her tormentor would find more difficulty in making his assaults through walls of stone than through the leafy coverings of the lodges. The apartment into which Duncan and his guide first entered had been exclusively devoted to her accommodation. The latter approached her bedside, which was surrounded by females, in the center of whom Hayward was surprised to find his missing friend David. A single look was sufficient to apprise the pretended leech that the invalid was far beyond his powers of healing. She lay in a sort of paralysis, indifferent to the objects which crowded before her sight and happily unconscious of suffering. Hayward was far from regretting that his mummeries were to be performed on one who was much too ill to take an interest in their failure or success. The slight qualm of conscience which had been excited by the intended deception was instantly appeased and he began to collect his thoughts in order to enact his part with suitable spirit when he found he was about to be anticipated in his skill by an attempt to prove the power of music. Gamut, who had stood prepared to pour forth his spirit in song when the visitors entered, after delaying a moment, drew a strain from his pipe and commenced to him that might have worked a miracle had faith in its efficacy been of much avail. He was allowed to proceed to the close, the Indians respecting his imaginary infirmity and Duncan too glad of the delay to hazard the slightest interruption. As the dying cadence of his strains was falling on the ears of the latter, he started aside at hearing them repeated behind him in a voice half human, half sepulchral. Looking around, he beheld the shaggy monster seated on end in a shadow of the cavern where, while his restless body swung in the uneasy manner of the animal, it repeated, in a sort of low growl, sound, if not words, which bore some slight resemblance to the melody of the singer. The effect of so strange an echo on David may better be imagined than described. His eyes opened as if he doubted their truth and his voice became instantly mute in excess of wonder. A deep laid scheme of communicating some important intelligence to Hayward was driven from his recollection by an emotion which very nearly resembled fear, but which he was fain to believe was admiration. Under its influence, he exclaimed aloud, Dash, she expects you, and is at hand, and precipitately left the cavern.